Welcome to Compassion Compass. While most of us recognize that treating others with compassion is important, many of us struggle with turning the compass of compassion toward ourselves. We live in a society that encourages us to beat ourselves up in order to get ahead. However, this only leads us to feel more anxious, insecure, and disconnected. In this podcast, I make a space for honest and vulnerable conversations about the self-compassion journey in order to help you, dear listener, orient your compassion compass inward to meet yourself with unconditional understanding, kindness, and support to better weather the storms of life. I am Dr. Regina Lazarovich, a clinical psychologist and your host for today's conversation. Can you let go of the mindset one day you'll win? Can you let go of the mindset that it has to be filled? Can you let go of your That's a race I'd like to win. Can you look me in the face a bit? Cause I'm afraid I don't win. Can we have a little fun? Hello, wonderful listeners. This is Regina. I am super excited about today's guest, eating disorder therapist Jennifer Rowland. I met Jennifer last November at the Binge Eating Disorder Association Conference in New York City, where she gave a presentation on weight stigma and eating disorder treatment, and I have been following her on social media ever since. Jennifer is a therapist in private practice in Rockville, Maryland, who specializes in working with adolescents and adults with anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, body image issues, anxiety, and depression. Jennifer is a licensed social worker and has a certificate in enhanced cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders. She also has a certificate in dialectical behavioral therapy and is a certified intuitive eating counselor. She is the chairwoman of Project Heal's National Network of eating disorder treatment providers, and has been named as one of the top eating disorder experts in the world by Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center. Jennifer is an expert writer for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. Her professional blog was named one of the top eating disorder blogs in the world, and her articles have reached thousands of people through websites, magazines, and books. We actually had some technical difficulties during the first recording of this episode, and thanks to Jennifer's generosity with her time, we were able to start over and record a second episode. So, the episode you're about to hear is a remix of the first and second episodes that we recorded. In this episode, Jennifer and I discussed the ways in which diet culture harms us all and contributes to weight-based stigma and eating disorders as well as Jennifer's journey of healing from rape and depression and how she found her way to self-compassion and the specific self-compassion strategies that Jennifer uses with her clients and practices on an ongoing basis and so much more. In this episode, I also open up about my own history of an eating disorder that made my 20s feel like a living hell. 
Though it wasn't easy, I was able to find my way out of that hell and have since embraced intuitive eating and health at every size. This is the first time that I publicly open up about my past struggles, and even though it feels scary and vulnerable, part of my mission with this podcast is to reduce shame and stigma that stands in the way of us meeting ourselves with compassion. It is very important to be able to talk about the difficulties we deal with as human beings in order to realize that we are not alone in our struggles. If this episode speaks to you, please share it with anyone who you think would benefit from hearing it. And now, here is my conversation with Jennifer Rowland. Okay, welcome to the show, Jennifer Rowland. I am so happy to have you here. Um, I am a fan of the work that you do. I heard you speak at the um, Binge Eating Disorder Association conference um, about weight stigma, and uh, I just loved everything you had to say. Um, And so I would like to start um, going along with the theme of this podcast, which is self-compassion, by asking you to speak about the role of self-compassion in the work that you do as an eating disorder therapist. Sure. So first off, thank you so much for having me and for coming up to say hi at the conference last year. Um, So self-compassion, I think, is crucial to, honestly, in my opinion, any work that you're doing, but specifically... For people with eating disorders, there's often a lot of shame around their illness. There's often a lot of critical self-judgment. Often people's eating disorder voices are not too kind. So I think that self-compassion is incredibly important for working with that population. Yeah, I agree. Um, And, you know, as someone who has a history of an eating disorder, I, I can very much identify with that shame and I think that was one of the biggest obstacles to recovery as well for me for many years Um, especially as someone who was um, at the time in a PhD program for clinical psychology right and yet still struggling and so I think right and so I think it's really important to talk about that Um, where do you think that shame comes from like in your in your experience what do you see people kind of speaking about when when it comes to that shame. Sure, and first off, I mean, I wanna say I appreciate the courage it takes for you to share that. I work with, actually I see a lot of therapists and other like helping professionals in my practice who have eating disorders, so you're definitely not alone in having that history. Um, and I would say in terms of the shame, I think it comes from a culture where we don't talk about it's getting increasingly better, but for a long time we didn't talk about mental illness. I think among the mental illnesses, eating disorders are particularly misunderstood and stigmatized. I think they're often seen as, you know, somebody who's shallow or vain or, you know, just a diet gone too far, which couldn't be further from the truth. You know, they're real, like, serious mental illnesses with, like, biopsychosocial roots. And I think just when we think about the behaviors that go along with eating disorders, whatever that eating disorder behavior is, whether it's binging, purging, restricting, compulsive exercise, 
there can be so much shame, especially there's a sense often of being alone and that people wouldn't understand because frankly, there are people who, it's not that they can't understand, but for people who've never struggled with an eating disorder, never known someone, never worked with them, it's really hard to understand, well, why can't you just eat that? Or why can't you just stop? But it doesn't work that way. And you and I know that. Um, So I think that's where the shame comes from is people align with that narrative. They're like, why can't I just stop? Like, why can't I just snap my fingers and get better? Why is this so hard? And so they're judging and shaming themselves for struggling with an eating disorder. Yeah, and I think that's why I'm so glad that we're talking about it and why I think it's so important. Um, And I would love to actually, actually go into that a bit. You know, what are the reasons that eating disorders are you know, such an epidemic at this yeah. time. I mean, I think there's a lot of factors. I think obviously people who have eating disorders, there's a strong genetic component. So they can, you know, there might be family members who've had an eating disorder, but often people don't always share that publicly. So you may not even know that you have that genetic link. Then there's temperamental factors. Like some people might be perfectionistic or a little bit rigid in their thinking that can align themselves to eating disorders. And then there's environmental factors. So going on a diet, I think the statistic is that one in five people who go on a diet will go on to develop an eating disorder because it triggers the underlying genetics and temperament. And so I think within a fat phobic culture, I think our culture is very right now appearance-based, fat phobic. Um, There's very much a thin ideal standard of beauty. And I think that alone doesn't cause an eating disorder. Everyone would have one, but it makes it a very complicated climate for people who have that genetic predisposition and who are struggling or in recovery. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, that environmental piece, I think, is so strong that, at least in my experience, especially among women, I find that it's quite rare to meet someone who doesn't at least have some uh, body image insecurity or disordered eating you know, stuff. Um, Exactly. And I think that's so sad when you think about it, that so many people's brain space, even if it doesn't develop into a full-blown eating disorder, like their brain space is taking up with this unhelpful and negative thinking, basically, around food and body. Right. Yeah. And, And so, you know, can you speak to where that comes from within our culture? You know, how do we kind of get here um, to this, you know, holding up the thin body as something to strive for and also as something that's doable? Yeah. So I think, you know, back in the 1500s, being larger was seen as a sign of wealth and beauty because there was food scarcity. And actually there are other cultures right now in the world where being seen, being large is seen as a sign of beauty. So it really is a cultural construction, this like thin ideal standard. I think there's a lot that plays into it. Um, certainly in recent times, I think the rise of this like healthism, almost like orthorexia culture has made way where now, again, the beauty standard is always changing and frankly, it's hard for me to even keep up with, but I think now the ideal is touted more as like that quote unquote fit looking body, um, because our culture honestly is so afraid of death and mortality that we, and uncertainty that we latch onto any, any of these false, um, as Tara Brock would say, false refuges um, in terms of things we feel that we can control um, in a world that feels chaotic. And so I think that's one explanation for why people 
think that they want to try to lose weight to try to quote unquote control their body size. Yeah, and yet, right, it's not something that is actually possible. I, you know, I believe research says that any kind of dieting attempt, um, you know, res- there's like a 95 to a 98% failure rate. And it may work for the first year or two, but then within three to five years, you end up regaining, um, you know, more weight or the same weight or even more. And that's where the yo-yo dieting comes from. And that actually ends up being less healthy for you. Maybe we can, you know, speak a bit more at length about that, Um, you know, like why attempts at any kind of intentional, you know, quote unquote, weight management um, are ultimately not only unhelpful, but actually harmful. I mean, there's so many reasons. I think first off, when we look at the data and the research, there just simply isn't research to support the idea that we have ultimate control over our weight. I think, you know, when we look at the statistics on dieting, it's something like 95 to 97% of people who diet will lose weight in the short term and then go on to gain it back in the long term, because essentially when we're depriving our body, our body really tries to keep us alive. Like that is what we were primed for evolutionarily. So things might happen like when we restrict our food, our body might slow down our metabolism to try to conserve energy. It might turn off our heating and cooling. It might turn off our period. So it might increase our, you know, hunger signals. So our bodies are really smart and basically trying to fight against our genetic blueprint is pretty much a fruitless effort. Um, And also I would add that, you know, a focus on weight loss, again, first off, there's no research way that we found for that to happen. Because if that was the case, if there was a way for us to control our weight in the long term, then everyone would be thin because of the terrible weight stigma in this culture. So there's that. And then for people with eating disorders, I mean, I don't think a weight loss focus is helpful or research based for anybody. Um, But I think particularly for people with eating disorders, it's incredibly contraindicated because we're basically encouraging disordered behaviors if we're telling people that they need to lose weight. Because how are they going to do that? They're going to restrict their food or engage in other unhealthy behaviors. And I think that really comes from the fat phobia in our culture where we're prescribing eating disorder behaviors in people in larger body sizes. Yeah, where do you think that fat phobia comes from? Yeah, it's interesting because it hasn't always been this way. I think back in the 1800s, being larger was seen as a sign of wealth because there was food scarcity. Um, I think now in this culture, Basically, the diet industry has kind of picked the body type that is, I don't want to say, that is, first off, I think maybe 5% of people genetically have like a very thin body type, and that's just their body. But I think that in terms of evolution, having a very fast metabolism and a very thin body was not evolutionarily helpful because we needed to survive. So I don't think that the vast majority of us have that genetic makeup. So the diet industry has kind of latched onto that because they want to pick something that is pretty much impossible for everyone to attain and to actually have in the long term because it keeps repeat customers buying their products. Right, and it's a $60 billion industry, the diet industry. Exactly, and that's not even including the medical weight loss industry, which I'm sure is just as high, if not higher, 
Yeah, and that really, you know, upsets me and breaks my heart um, because there are so many harmful kind of things that are recommended. And that brings me to one thing that um, I've heard you speak about, which is, um, you know, sort of uh, weight-based stigma within eating disorder treatment itself, where, for example, someone at a higher weight would automatically be assumed to have, um, you know, binge eating disorder as opposed to, you know, anything else that they may be struggling with, which could be anorexia. Yeah, I'd love to have you speak about that. Sure. This is one of my big passion areas because I think that eating disorder treatment and the recovery community, unfortunately, I think tides are slowly changing, but there is a lot of fat phobia that's going on within the eating disorder treatment community. Things like body tracings of people in treatment centers where they're having a client with anorexia lie down and then they're tracing their body to prove, oh, look, you're not actually fat. Where basically what they're, yeah, they're colluding with the person's eating disorder self because they're reinforcing the idea that fat is something that we need to fear. Um, And then there's the issue of people in larger bodies who are denied treatment. I've heard of this by certain facilities because of their BMI or told that, you know, they have a restrictive eating disorder, but they're told they need to go into the binge eating disorder program because of their body size. And I think that there's already so much shame and stigma wrapped up in eating disorders that for people in marginalized communities, including those in higher weight bodies, there's even more barriers when it comes to getting the care that they need. And we know that, you know, eating disorders are the deadliest mental illness. And they're also, you know, even if there aren't physical complications, because not everyone has that, they're mentally exhausting. Yeah. And, you know, I bet it also results in a lot of shame for people who are in marginalized bodies and eating disorders are already in and of themselves um, you know things that bring up a lot of shame and so uh, yeah can you speak about that and your experience of witnessing that yeah so I mean it eating disorders are can be really devastating obviously like there is so much hope for recovery so I don't want to paint like a negative picture but there often is so much shame and stigma associated with eating disorders. You know, I have clients who don't want to tell anyone that they're coming to therapy or who feel very ashamed of having the eating disorder. Or, you know, I've had people reach out to me to contact me for help who have been married and haven't told their spouses the whole time they've been married because of the amount of shame. And then you add on to that being in a larger body. Well, people in higher weight bodies are often told things like you can't possibly have an eating disorder or you must binge eat or you can't be sick. And so they're constantly invalidated. So it only adds more shame and stigma to an illness that's already incredibly stigmatized. And I think, honestly, it's one of the most misunderstood mental illnesses because people judge the severity of an eating disorder based on the way somebody looks, which is just in my clinical practice, it's so not accurate. I can't tell how severely someone's struggling or who is struggling, you know, based on what they look like. Um, And I think there's also this myth that people with eating disorders are just shallow and vain, or it's like a diet gone too far. And that also could not be further from the truth. 
Yeah. And I mean, I think the culture is so toxic that it doesn't, you will get hit, you get, well, you will get negatively impacted no matter what weight you're at. Um, but for people who are at higher weights, they're also systemic, um, you know, issues, systemic kind of stigma and bias that they're affected by. So yeah, you raise a really good point that fat phobia and weight stigma impacts everyone, but the people it impacts the most are people in higher weight bodies. Um, and particularly for those in eating disorder recovery or who are trying to seek eating disorder treatment, there is unfortunately, because we have to understand that eating disorder treatment centers and the clinicians who work there in the recovery community, we're all kind of swimming in the same diet culture polluted water um, throughout our lives. So unfortunately, despite what I think most of the time are good intentions, there are still centers that purport to treat eating disorders and quote unquote, unquote obesity. So they're treating a severe life-threatening mental illness and a body type, which can be perfectly fine and healthy. So, I mean, I think what I talked about in the presentation, with, which I did with Dr. Um, Reichman, we talked about, you know, how, and I've unfortunately witnessed this firsthand in networking with other eating disorder treatment professionals um, who make derogatory comments about their patients in higher weight bodies, which is just mm. atrocious and appalling. Yeah. But I think weight stigma and eating disorder treatment runs the gamut from reassuring a client you quote unquote won't let them get fat um, colluding with their eating disorder self, that fat is something they need to fear to people in higher weight bodies who are misdiagnosed or not taken seriously when they're struggling with an eating disorder. Yeah, that's why I think it's so important that, again, to talk about this, um, because, again, that's not, that's not supported by research, right? You can be in a higher weight body and be struggling with any kind of eating disorder, including anorexia, right? Um, Because, yeah, body diversity is a thing. Um, And I think it's really important uh, to try to, for us, um, to reduce the shame that so many people who may be struggling with body image or eating issues may be feeling and that may actually be getting in the way of them finding help, getting help, believing they're worthy of help. Um, So I would love it if you could speak about some of the common things that you notice with your uh, clients um, in terms of what brings up shame and if we could actually, you know, um, challenge those, you know, shame thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, so when I think about shame, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is clients in recovery from eating disorders who have talked to me about things that they did in their eating disorder, which they feel very ashamed of. Um, so maybe they were happy when a family member left because they could use their eating disorder behaviors at home. Um, or they got in a fight with somebody over you know, that person getting in the way of their food rituals. Um, and so whenever that kind of stuff comes up, we talk about how the reason they're feeling shame is because it's not in alignment with their true values. You know, they were acting in their eating disorder. That doesn't absolve them of responsibility, but it helps them to understand that this was not them. Like, I mean, it was them and it wasn't, you know, it's not getting rid of what they did, but it's like they did that because they were trapped by a mental illness, which they're not choosing to have. Um, And that actually brings me to my second one, which is 
shame for even having an eating disorder, shame for, well, I must have, I hear this, actually I've heard this quite a few times from clients, well, I'm the one who chose it. Like I went on a diet, I decided to do this, I decided to restrict my food and it's like nobody would decide to have an eating disorder, their health. You know, and I can say that from personal and professional experience, they're absolute hell. So nobody would choose that. It's the same way no one chooses to have cancer or diabetes. Um, And then there's the thought, another shame thought, is I'll have clients struggling with body image who are, like, crying about their body, feeling really awful about it. And then they're like, why am I so shallow? I'm just shallow. And I'm like, you're not shallow. First off, you're raised in this culture. Secondly, you have a mental illness where the symptoms are an obsession on weight and food. That's not being shallow. If you were actually shallow, you would not be so upset that you're fixated on this. Um, And so in terms of working with the shame, it's really helping clients to practice self-compassion, like thinking about what they would tell a friend or someone they love and care about. Um, and if that's hard, you know, sometimes I'll role play that out with the person in session just so they can practice because, you know, I think a lot of, for a lot of people, their automatic default setting is that harsh self-criticism. And so they're really not used to being kind to themselves. So it takes a little bit of practice. Yeah. Can you talk about any kind of specific strategies that you find helpful when talking with clients? Sure. So I think just like starting with some basic understanding, because especially not even just for younger clients, this could be for adults too. There are a lot of people who are just not familiar with the concept of self-compassion because I think we're often taught to be critical and judgmental of ourselves. We're not taught to be kind to ourselves. So first off, it's just introducing that as a concept and then I will really break it down. So I think First off, when it comes to self-compassion, we have to start with like an awareness. So we have to notice what it is that our minds are telling us that's critical because I think a lot of people when they first come to see me, they're not even aware of how harsh their inner critic or their eating disorder is. And so after we've noticed it, then we kind of have to go to the common humanity piece. So that's basically, I'm not alone in this. Like if it's someone with an eating disorder, a lot of people in recovery struggle with some of these unhelpful thoughts and it's understandable that I feel this way. And then the third step is kind of thinking about what would you tell someone that you love and care about? And I will use this a lot in sessions with clients. So let's say a client comes in and says, you know, I ate a piece of pizza last night. I feel like such a bad person. I need to go you know, punish myself by exercising or whatnot. I'm like, what would you say to a friend? Like if I was your friend, I came to you or like if you were babysitting a little girl and she came to you and said, I just ate a piece of pizza. I think I need to go exercise to punish myself. Like what would you say to them? And that's where their, their, you know, compassionate and true self starts to come out. Mm. Do you ever find that with that step, um, as I found this with some of my clients, uh, that it's difficult Like some people are just like, I don't even know what I would say to a friend. And what do you do in those cases? Yeah, I definitely get that sometimes. For some people, it's easier. They're like, oh, well, of course I wouldn't say that to a friend. But for other people, it's like, honestly, I don't know what I would say to them. And so what I often do is I'll role play with clients in sessions. So I'll have them start out by if they, you know, have an eating disorder, they'll be their eating disorder self and I will be their healthy self. This is a concept that comes from Carolyn Costin. And so in this, if we're doing it around self-compassion, it could be 
you know, the client's the inner critic and then you're their healthy self and you do a dialogue back and forth like in session and then I'll have a switch. So that way they can really practice it. If oh, that that's makes a sense. really good strategy. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, and I will like assign clients to do that for homework too. So then I'll have them email me like the back and forth. So it's like we role play it in session and then the seed is planted and then they do it on their own as well. Hmm, that's good. I'm kind of like tempted to do that right now. <laughs> I, I'm totally down for it. <laughs> like I'm, I'm happy to do stuff on the spot. So. All right, well, let's try it. I will take the role of the client and um, I'll bring up something that for many years was actually a belief that I, I held on to. Um, and we'll see if you can play yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sounds good. And, okay. Um, all okay. right. So, okay, here we go. Yeah. So I, you know, I've been, um, I, I feel so, so ashamed um, because I'm struggling with binge eating and I, I know so much about it, right? I've written papers about it, I've researched it, and yet it's like I still watch myself go through it and I, it doesn't make sense. Um, if I was, you know, I kind of feel like I should be smart enough to 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 figure my way out of it like i realize how how un, how unhelpful it is how, and and yet here i am just like hurting myself yeah so i mean first off i'm wondering if i came to you and i said you know i'm i know all this stuff i'm writing papers on it i'm i'm studying this i'm in this field and i'm struggling with binge eating disorder and i feel like I don't know what the heck is wrong with me. Like, I should just be able to get it together. I know all these things. I'm smart. Like, why can't, this is just my fault. Like, what would you say if, if a friend said that to you? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. That's, that's my problem. Like, I don't, I don't know what to say to myself, right? Yeah. Like, I really believe this. Yeah. So it's a really, um, you're really fused to that belief. Like, you believe that to be true. There's no, like, wiggle room there, basically. Yeah. It's hard for me to come up with arguments or challenges to it. Yeah. Okay. So I will play your healthy self um, and we'll kind of go back and forth. But basically, what I would say is it's kind of like if somebody who was treating cancer got cancer, that would also not be their fault. And so first off, what I want to say is you can have all the intellect and intelligence in the world. And I work with many other people who are therapists or in the field um, in some way in a helping profession. But the thing is, an eating disorder is a mental illness. You can't just snap out of it or, and you know this from your studies, that it, it really is a mental illness. It's not, it's not a choice. And so I think the shaming yourself, though, the saying that I should just be able to get over it. I don't think that's fair to yourself because I think you're a professional, but you're also a human being. And, you know, it's not your fault that you're struggling with it. But the fact that you're having this battle in your head, I mean, it tells me you really wanted, you don't want to deal with this anymore, which ultimately I think is hopeful. Yeah, but it also feels like a weakness, you know, it feels like a weakness of character. Like, you know, if I was just strong enough, I'd like you know, figure my way out of it or I wouldn't be susceptible to it in the first place. Yeah. So what do you think causes eating disorders? Because you have all the book smarts, so you know. <laughs> so what causes eating disorders? Hmm. Well, I think it's complicated. 
I think. Okay. But for it, different reasons for different. What would people. be a few common a com- few common causes of eating disorders or factors? Um, certain. Well, I think the biggest the biggest factor would be um, getting messages externally um, mm-hmm. that being thin equals all these positive things like being successful and being disciplined and being smart right like all these messages and that like it's 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 under my control um and then that's in combination with um a striving towards i think you know maybe perfection and high achievement um and i think those two things came together and the reason it resulted in in an eating disorder is because well actually it doesn't work that way and if you try to control and restrict yourself your body is just going to rebel and you're going to end up with an eating disorder yeah like you're going to end up feeling you know feeling out of control actually around food yeah so your eating disorder i mean based on what we know it's a combination of that temperament that perfectionism there's probably some genetic links for you too And, you know, what you talked about, the messages you got about thinness being valuable in combination with your body literally trying to save itself. So your body was actually trying to, like, you were trying to do a good thing for yourself through the behavior because your body, you know, was afraid it was starving. So binging is actually a very natural reaction from evolution to starvation. Um, And so really that was your way. I think it was the best way you knew how to cope at the time with what was going on. But none of those factors were choices for you. Getting those messages, having the temperament that you had, having the genetics. So I don't, I don't think any of those things were choices. And also if eating disorder recovery was as simple as just snapping out of it, then I and many other people would not have jobs. So I just wanna say that it's not your fault. And I think if you could have prevented it, you would have, but it's just yeah. simply not, it's simply not possible. You know. It, it was sounds like the perfect storm that came together. And I guess I would ask you, like, what is the function the shame is serving in your life? Because I don't think you would, maybe not the shame, but the thought that I caused it or that I should just snap out of it. Like, what is that doing for you? Hmm. Um, I could see how it could be in some ways protective by having me feel like I do have control over this. Um, versus kind of admitting that, you know, actually, um, if it wasn't something that I had a choice in, that also means, you know, it, it comes with an element of feeling, um, it's, it, there's a fear around it as well, because you feel less in control. Yeah, so this thought and the shame was serving you in some way, or like the thought wouldn't be there, right? It was, you were trying to protect yourself from feeling powerless, and it was also getting in the way, right? Because... Mm. I think we can have both things be true that you didn't cause this, like you didn't choose an eating disorder and you have to choose, not that you have to, but recovery is a choice that like you do have power, you know, over your eating disorder and you also did not choose for it to develop. Both those things I think can be true. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think that was a good role play, you know, um, and, uh, you know, that makes me think of, you know, just kind of coming back to our interview. Um, 
that I found it so difficult to actually find help, you know, to find, like I was looking for help um, and yet it was so difficult to find it. And I'm wondering, you know, this was also, you know, 10 years ago is when I developed it. So I'm hoping the field is in a better shape now, but you're on the inside of the eating disorder field. Can you speak to um, what you see as happening in the field and any, um, you know, challenges or issues that are still necessary to, um, to overcome in order to help the most people um, with eating disorders? Yeah, I think there's a lot of barriers still for people. I think one is access to care that unfortunately not every area has skilled and trained eating disorder professionals, but the good thing is that more and more people are starting to work online. Um, Like for instance, I provide eating disorder recovery coaching and I actually just hired an associate who works under me who does that as well. And so we're able to see people via video all over the world, which is really awesome. And I know other people work that way as well. Um, There's also financial barriers for some people. Often, you know, a lot of eating disorder treatment isn't covered by insurance. And so there are some great organizations such as Project Heal. I'm actually the chair of their Healer Circle, um, which basically, yeah, it's outpatient providers who agree to provide pro bono treatment to at least one scholarship participant a year. Um, I think, yeah, it's awesome. And I think other barriers are like you talked about, just that shame and not wanting to tell anyone. And it's really hard. I think it's really hard to recover in isolation. Like it's really helpful to have support. And if shame is keeping you from speaking up about it, I guess I would just encourage anyone listening to really reach out to somebody. Right. Yeah. It's not your fault. It's not something that you chose. It's not some, you know, weakness of character or, you know, it doesn't say anything about your intelligence or capability. Right. Um, Yeah. What do you find in terms of, right? Like, I think you mentioned like the kinds of people that you see in your practice, um, you know, yeah. Can you kind of describe them? Like, I bet a lot of them are actually quite high achieving. Yeah. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that I mean, when you said it's not weakness of character, I wanted to say that everyone I work with pretty much has an eating disorder. And I would say, you know, when you said it's not weakness of character, I think people with eating disorders, people who are in recovery, they're some of the most intelligent, resilient, compassionate, like ambitious people that I know. And I think once we can help them to harness all of that, um, all of those amazing characteristics, which, you know, some of our personality traits can can be both strengths and at times can get in our own way, right? So once we can leverage all of that drive and determination and you know whatever it is for that person into more positive pursuits, I think they can really be unstoppable. Um, but I don't, I mean, yeah, I think and also when people are able to recover and come on the other side, there's a sense of strength and just like resilience and courage that they might not have had otherwise. Well, we would of course never wish an eating disorder on anyone. Right. Yeah. And so, um, self-compassion, uh, is important for, first of all, uh, working with that shame about having the disorder in the first place, but then also, I, you know, it's probably something that's super important throughout the recovery process because it can be quite the challenge and quite scary. 
definitely. I think it's huge. And I think, honestly, self-compassion is important throughout life. I think it's important throughout recovery. And then it's an ongoing practice. Like, I am certainly not a perfect human. You know, I sometimes make mistakes or, you know, say something that other people disagree with, which I don't think makes me imperfect. But anyway, my point is, like, I need to practice self-compassion, and I think we all do, because all of us are human beings on this earth. We're all imperfect, and I think beating ourselves up doesn't get us anywhere. In recovery, in life, like, it, we think it's the thing that's driving us, but it's actually the thing that's getting in our own way. Yeah, and, you know, I, I would love to actually talk about you personally and the role of self-compassion in, in the scope of your life, and I would love it if you could... Um, tell me about a time in your life when you were most in need of self-compassion. Yeah, so probably a few different ones, but I think what comes to mind would be, and I just recently started talking more publicly about this, but when I was 17, I was raped by somebody that I, it was like I'd gone on my third date with him and I had also just been through a breakup. So I was like rebounding from that. Um, and, you know, I was really upset and devastated after. But then what is common, unfortunately, with a lot of trauma survivors is that I second guess myself. And I said, well, was that my fault? Because like I went back to his room or whatever. And, you know, maybe it wasn't even rape, even though like he hit me across the face and like cursed at me, you know, it was like very clear. But I think in that, like that whole moment and some of the aftermath of that, um, you know, I became depressed after that happened. I think I could have really used self-compassion in that moment because I was so, I mean, I think when we go through trauma, often there's a natural reaction to try to make sense of it. And if you're not placing the anger on the perpetrator, it has to go somewhere. So I think I turned some of that inward, if that makes sense. And I think that it's probably the time in my life that where that comes to mind, where that would have been the most applicable. I so much appreciate you being so vulnerable and open um, and speaking about it. And I, I think that it's something that happens way too often. I also have um, a sexual trauma in my past. Um, and if you could go back to yourself at that time, right, what would you say to yourself? What words of compassion or help would you offer to yourself? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say what happened to you was absolutely not okay and it was not your fault. And your reaction of feeling really down and depressed is actually a really normal reaction to that kind of violation. but nothing that happened was your fault, no matter if you go back to someone's room. I was sober at the time, but some people blame themselves if you drink, if whatever you wear, like nobody ever deserves to sexually assault or rape you. And so I would just say that this was not your fault and that like, I hope you can do something kind for yourself because you just went through something really terrible. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was. Um just speaking, actually, I was just yesterday recording another episode with um, Emily Nagoski, who's a sex educator. And she spoke about, you know, another thing that victims often blame themselves of, which is the non-concordance between genital response and what's happening 
right? That you could be totally not okay with what's happening. Like you could actually hate it and have a general response, mm-hmm. right? Like it could be what? And, and then that's, that's, that, that happens. And that doesn't mean that you're wanting it or that it's okay. And so just yeah. to kind of send that out as well to kind of reduce any kind of shame or stigma. Um, no, I think that's, on. that's so important. And I actually, like later in my life after that incident, I ended up um, volunteering on a rape crisis hotline for a year. So I heard a lot of that kind of stuff that's so, yeah. so common. Um, but yeah, it doesn't matter. Like that's a normal body reaction sometimes. And that does not mean that you wanted it or that it was your fault. Yeah. How, how did you find your way through that um, to the place that you are now, right? Where you are, it sounds like in a much better place, you, you are able to have compassion for yourself, but that was really tough at that time. Yeah, I want to better understand your journey. Yeah, I mean, it was, to be honest, it was a winding road, and I think I coped in different ways, whether it was um, abusing alcohol, eventually, you know, an eating disorder, um, And so I think through the healing process from all of those things kind of combined, I had to, I mean, I had therapy, I went to my own therapy and I learned and practiced self-compassion and I really had to apply that to my own life. I think also what really helped me was, and this doesn't help everyone, but for me, working with other trauma survivors and hearing them share their stories I felt nothing but empathy. And so that really helped me to see, externalize my thoughts and see that they weren't true. Um, But yeah, I think all of the difficult things in my past really, while I wouldn't wish them on anyone, I'm very thankful for them um, because I think they give me a strength that I definitely would have not had in terms of opening my own business, like hiring associates, which I just did um, because I faced things that were my greatest fears or experiences I didn't think I could overcome um, and it's it's useful now because I choose what I share with clients um, you know aside from a few things that I've been more open about publicly and it's just nice to be able to say like you know everyone's different I can't say I totally understand your experience but like I get that like I've been there what you're talking about so I guess long story short I got my own treatment outpatient um, and I you know did therapy and and worked on some of my own stuff and that's not to say I mean I also want to be really cognizant that like things are so much better but I'm also not perfect you know like I still have moments where I'm a human being I catch myself being like oh why was I late to that like I should have been more organized and I'm like okay like welcome to being a human like things happen you know and I'm able to catch it a lot more quickly whereas before it was just a spiral you know and it would end in like a self-destructive behavior and now it's like all right I hear you like inner critic got you. Like, I can move about my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much that you said there that I want to reflect on. I mean, you know, first of all, um, first of all, I love, I love this about you. And it's something that I share both in my personal life and in what the work that I do, because I work with anxiety, especially, and a lot of my work is exposure based. So I love that, like, <laughs> face the fear, right? Like, that's, and that's, my favorite that's what you're thing. all about. Yeah, you know, I, I love like, that about you. I eat yeah. like donuts and bagels and all the, all my clients, their fear foods all week. Yes. So yeah, I'm all it. about the exposures. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, and then, you know, you touched on that, like this is why that common humanity is such an important aspect 
of self-compassion. And it sounds like it was so important for you in um, meeting yourself with compassion as well. And perhaps working with others, um, as well as your own therapy, but working with others um, helped you recognize that you are worthy of that same compassion. Yeah, right. no, exactly. Because I'm not going to stand in front of somebody and tell them it's not your fault while believing that it's my fault. I think it's important to be able to recognize like the way that some of our own unhelpful beliefs could get in the way of our work and to work through them, you know, which is what I've done. Um, and so, yeah, I think like having to practice that self-compassion myself and coming from the honestly the complete opposite of self-compassion, just like incredibly, you know, a lot of my clients, they have like this inner dictator. That's what I had, you know, particularly when I was in my eating disorder. Um, yeah, there was this sense of this like inner militant dictator. And I, there were times honestly in my life where I really, really hated myself. And so I think hmm. being able to have a different relationship with myself now, it's helpful for me to empathize and to say like, I get it. It's hard in the beginning, but like it does get easier with time and more automatic and natural. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you found your way to self-compassion. How did you actually, you know, kind of come to it or stumble upon like self-compassion specifically? Was it in your therapy or some other place? Yeah, so it was actually a therapist that I saw when I first got help for my eating disorder who introduced me to the concept. And then, you know, in full, my temperament is somebody where I get real into something. So I then, <laughs> yes. I'm sure you can relate. I mean, not that everyone yes, like a... has the same temperament, with, but you know, there's some similarity sometimes. Um, so then I read Kristen Neff's book on self-compassion yes. and yes, and I really got into the whole thing and now I integrate it into my therapy and my coaching practice with people. You know, I have people fill out the self-compassion assessment on Kristen Neff's website um, and practice it. So yeah, I think that was really how I stumbled upon it. Because again, I've gone for honestly much of my life being very self-critical and perfectionistic and hard on myself. Yeah, I totally relate. And I will link to her book in the show notes. It's it's like the one book I recommend to every single client that I see. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so can you speak about some strategies, some self-compassion strategies that you practice on an ongoing basis? Sure. So I think, I mean, first off, you have to notice the unhelpful thought. So like notice what your mind is telling you um, if there's a self-critical thought that comes up. And then the second piece is that common humanity piece of thinking, you know, first off, who hasn't shown up late to something, to use that example, who hasn't accidentally missed a appointment or made a mistake before? Like that's human, right? So yes. acknowledging that. And then the third piece would be what can I say slash do to treat myself with kindness, you know? So saying, you know, it's okay. Like mistakes happen and this doesn't say anything about your worth as a person, you know, and like what can, what kind of actions can I take? So part of self-compassion for me, the regular practice is self-care. Um, and self-care isn't just bubble baths and manicures. It's also setting boundaries with people, you know, it's looking at work-life balance. It's, looking at all of these things. So I think part of self-compassion, it's it's looking at how I treat myself, basically, and constantly making sure that I'm treating myself the best way that I can, just like I would treat somebody else that I care about. Yeah, I, I absolutely love everything that you're saying, and I agree. And, um, you know, I guess 
one question or that someone might have, and I would love you to, to, to challenge is, you know, um, but that sounds selfish. Is self-compassion selfish? <laughs> yeah, I get this one a lot, especially with my teens, but with other people, adults as well. Um, I can tell you do too. But basically, I would say it's the opposite of selfish. I think self-compassion, honestly, it's necessary to life, particularly as a therapist. It's necessary to my life. But I think it's not selfish to put yourself first. It's, it's necessary. And if we're not being kind and gentle with ourselves, it's harder for us to support other people. So I think self-compassion actually helps our relationships too. So it's really the opposite of selfish. It's self-preservation. Yeah, yeah. I like to think of that analogy of, you know, if you're in a plane and what they tell you, if the plane starts going down, you <laughs> secure your mask on first, no matter who is sitting next to you, your child, the love of your life, your parent, it does not matter. Because if you run out of oxygen, you are of no use to anyone else. Um, and it's 100%. Like you recognize that. Yeah. So <laughs> That's important. like my favorite, yeah, analogy, because it's, it's the same thing, right? It's, you know, I love and I'm so passionate about the work that I do, but if I'm not taking time off for myself, if I'm not taking breaks, if I'm, you know, then I'm not going to be of service to the people that I work with. So I think we have to remember that prioritizing self-care and self-compassion is really prioritizing everyone else in our life as well so we can be the best support to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and so as we as we are coming to towards the end of our uh, conversation today, I have one more question. Um, can you tell me um, what has been the most surprising thing so far um, that you have found about your self compassion journey? I think the most surprising thing has been how this is going to be strange, but like how productive I am, because I think we have this, I had this belief when I was younger, when I was in college and I had to get straight A's, you know, and I had to be militant on myself. I had this belief that if I am not mean to myself, I will not be productive. I'll just laze around and do nothing. And it's actually completely the opposite because now that I'm kinder to myself and not perfectionistic, like I'm still very high achieving, but I'm not perfectionistic. I'm actually able to do way more. Like I created, I always tell people, I created like six or seven eating disorder trainings in the past five months because I'm no longer worried if there's a typo. And like I do my best, but I'm not like freaking out over it being perfect and I'm not being hard on myself. So it's, it's weird how being kind to yourself not only makes you feel happier, it also actually does the thing that people tell themselves self-criticism is doing. It enables you to actually pursue the things you care about because I think perfectionism and self-criticism, it actually gets in the way of doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm like nodding my head the whole time. And <laughs> I found that to be super true for myself as well. Like, you know, over, yeah, I'm a recovering perfectionist. And I would have never said this that podcast. <laughs> right? Like, I, would I call have myself never... a recovering perfectionist too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it's okay if that shows up sometimes, you know, but now you can step back, recognize it, challenge it. And most importantly, do the things that matter in your life. Right. Exactly. And I, I know you're doing that. I'm so impressed with all that you're doing. And like, yeah, you're right. Like it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be perfect um, exactly. for it to be important and effective and amazing. Um, 
And yeah, and that's why we're speaking here today, because uh, I just got started without, <laughs> without waiting yeah. for, it to, for everything to be perfect. Well, that's amazing, yeah. right? Because it's like perfectionism and self-criticism, it holds us back. That's what I found. Yeah. Because if I was so yeah. rigid and perfectionistic, I wouldn't have my own business, because I would be like all worried about how people are perceiving me, and it gets in the way. So sometimes I think we just have to feel the fear and then take action that's in alignment with our true values anyway. Yeah, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, and that's what the research shows as well, right? Like, you know, in Crystal Nav's book, she actually talks about it that, you know, research shows that in terms of productivity, like, you know, being self-compassionate is much more effective than being self-critical. Exactly. So, yeah, I've read that. I've read that research too. And it also makes you a hell of a lot happier. Like, it's just, it's a miserable place yes. to be, feeling like you have a dictator in your head all the time. That's really not fun. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so I've I've loved speaking with you today. Um, thank you so much. And um, I would love it if you could just um, speak about what you're up to and where people can get in touch with you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a great time. Um, so what I'm up to, um, I have a private therapy practice in Rockville, Maryland, and then I do recovery coaching online via video. I just hired another recovery coach who's amazing. Oh. And yeah, she's working under me and hope to have, fingers crossed, another therapist on board with me soon. Um, and then in terms of where to find me, my website is www.jennifer, Roland, R as in rock, O-L-L-I-N.com. All right. Thank you so much. And I will link to all the things we talked about in the show notes as well as, as, well as to your website. Um, and yeah, I hope that you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. You can hear this episode again, learn more about today's guest, and donate at our website, CompassionPodcast.org. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot org. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to play an active role in amplifying its message, please share it with anyone who you think would benefit from hearing it. It would also mean a lot to me if you could leave a nice rating and review for Compassion Compass in iTunes, since this would make it easier for more people to find it. The music you're hearing behind me now is by C. Burroughs. Take good care. So can you let go of the light that you were all alone? And can you get out from behind it? It's just a telephone.